Transpower is signalling there could be power cuts this winter to manage supply and demand in the power sector if the wrong conditions were to combine. There's a significant pressure on hydro lakes to deliver the electricity energy required as well as thermal generation, burning coal and gas to get through the winter. But plant outages happen every year, and combined with a situation where the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, the grid owner isn't ruling out using power cuts to get through. There are other pressures on the national grid operator. It needs to spend billions of dollars on creaking infrastructure, a lot of it built in the 1960s and 1970s, and is facing headwinds in recruitment and supply chains. Transpower Chief Executive Alison Andrew told me just before we went to air this morning that the energy system needs more flexible, fast-starting generation sources, such as a new gas turbine or more battery storage systems, in a situation where wind power may suddenly drop off. New Zealand has a market, electricity market, that is an energy-only market, and so it relies on a price signal to get generators making their generation available. So everybody is forecasting demand, forecasting generation, looking at prices generators are, and saying, is it worth our while? Is it commercially in our interest to make our plant available to run? Will we get dispatched and therefore um, get paid to run? Now, if you've got flexible resources, which can be a gas-fired peaker, which the contact has some, Todd has some, Genesis has some, they're fast to start up, so you can make those decisions much closer to real-time watching pricing. And when price spikes because of something like the wind drops unexpectedly or there's a failure of an electricity transmission line or a generator plant, you can respond by turning on your fast-start peaking capacity or battery capacity that can also respond or people turning off demand. They can respond in that short term the challenge you've got with those slow start thermals like the Rankin units at Huntley or the combined cycle plants, they need time to warm up. The challenge they have if they don't see that the price signal is going to be there to cover their cost of running and they're not dispatched over those peaks, they have the cost of starting up, getting warm and not being paid to run. So that's the challenge we have with our electricity market being an energy-only market and generators responding to what they are expecting to be price signals as to whether it's worth their while to make their plant available in that time frame. So if we want to be not dependent on price signals to not have power outages, what are the alternatives? What do you make of, an, of essentially an insurance system of paying the generators uh, to carry excess supply that may not be used uh, and or paying them to be ready to go in these circumstances when it may not be called upon? That is what a lot of markets around the world have been grappling with. And indeed in New Zealand, the Electricity Authority, which is responsible for setting the rules and and making these determinations, has just recently consulted and had a piece of work done by MDAG, the Market Development Advisory Group, which was a group they pulled together of industry experts and, and others to look at all the options for how we might manage this transition to a more renewable market system. And as you point out, there are options for how you can deal with this. As you say, like it's an insurance and paying for insurance. The challenge they found, and they put their um, consultation up, the challenge they identified is it's quite expensive to carry that insurance. And there's always that balance between the, the risk and how real you see the risk being and the cost of paying for that insurance. 
and whether in fact you get that insurance. It's quite a, a lot of experience in overseas markets um, that have proven in some places it, it has not been that successful. As part of this consultation, TransPower submitted um, to it, obviously as a system operator, we would be interested, and I have to say as a bias, we'd be more interested in having more insurance because it makes our job easier if we have that more safety margin. But the MDAG paper, um, and the, that was heavily consulted and agreed with industry, was that they have committed to staying with the energy-only market and not paying for um, what they would call a capacity market or payments to have uh, these slow start generators um, available as an insurance premium. How much would it cost to have a buffer paid for, regardless of whether it's required, for one or two peak risk months? What sort of money are we talking about? I can't give you that number, and I apologise, I don't have it at my fingertips. The Electricity Authority has done that, that research um, in overseas markets, it has proven to be quite expensive. It is quite challenging. Some of these power plants take cost of the order of $100,000 to start up. And if you're asking them to start up several times in the year and be paid for and available and not run, that can be quite expensive to the industry. So I can't actually, I'm sorry, I don't have at my fingertips an overall number, um, but it can be quite expensive. This is a, this is a real kind of um, a real experience. People will remember August three years ago. Uh, this August, thirty five thousand households with their power cut on the coldest night of the year, and there was a you know a confluence of events. But that's exactly what we're talking about. What happened after that? What tools were brought in following the inquiry into that to try and avoid it happening again? The Electricity Authority did, um, and there was a detailed investigation done and has consulted on what extra tools we put in place. They have decided not to put in place these other mechanisms that we've just been talking about, capacity payments, that sort of thing. What has been agreed on is a lot more information. And so actually, we as a system operator have been providing a lot more information to the market. So for example, we um, have really tightened up on the wind forecasts and are now showing wind forecast um, on, on the forecasting that we are buying that's much more accurate, not just adding up the forecast supplied by the generators. And we're seeing much more improvement in the accuracy of wind forecasting. We are now providing availability for the market on what's the residual, which we weren't didn't actually have published before. The residual is how much generation is left over above what we believe is going to be required to meet the peak. And as a system operator, we like having a residual that's in addition to the reserves the market carries. We like having a residual of about 200 megawatts. And we're now publishing that so that the market can see how close we're getting to our margin. If we get at that 200 or below, we will start to issue some um, advice notices to the industry calling for demand response or more generation to be offered. So we're now providing that too. We're also providing sensitivities around what would happen with price to see generation happening. And we are also now um, working with the authority to work with, with the um, distribu distribution companies to make available their controllable load, make it visible and bid into the market so we know exactly how much gen um, demand response we can call on if we need it at the peak. And making it visible that demand response is available is a big improvement on the situation we faced 
on the 9th of August 2021. Okay. You had to issue about 12 of those notices last year. So that just goes to show how often things are getting close to the precipice, so to speak. We've talked about supply. You've said so far it appears there's not enthusiasm for paying for um, excess supply to be immediately available. Let's talk about demand. What tools are there for demand management for for, low, for turning down hot water um, cylinders or whatever else when things are getting close? At the moment, we have uh, well, last year we had around two hundred, just over two hundred megawatts of controllable load made available for us to manage at the peak. Now, that controllable load is what the distribution companies make available to us, and it's things like hot water heating, which they can manage, um, which doesn't affect consumers directly uh, in the moment. So we had about 200 megawatts. So last year, you rightly point out, we did have um, eight low residual generation situations we advised. Four of those would have escalated um, to grid emergencies without the industry response. But the industry responded well. We got a mix of delayed or cancelled outages on other generation units and and transmission circuits, and we got commitment of additional slow-start thermal units. So this visibility and this um, notice, there is an improved response from industry. But what we would like um, as TransPower is to get more flexible resources on the market. This year we had the first grid-scale battery commissioned. It's well electricity's uh, 35-megawatt, 33-megawatt battery um, Meridian has announced a 100 megawatt battery up at Green Bay. Contact has announcements around batteries. So we are seeing some now grid scale batteries, which would be fast start and really helpful. But other flexible resources, whether it's more fast start generation, such as gas peakers, or better demand response, so not just the distribution companies bidding in controllable load, but aggregators or retailers or industrial load actually bidding in and being prepared to drop off load when prices and demand is very high. That is an emerging area. We know demand is set to increase and keep increasing. I want to return to that. As things stand at the moment, what would happen to have to go as far as power cuts, which you can't rule out for this coming year? What would happen? The way that the situation works is that we very closely monitor supply demand. And most of the time, Catherine, barring an um, equipment failure, we we will get through. So there's two issues that can happen. One is that what we've been talking about, this peak winter demand, with just isn't enough capacity in the system. Um, And the other situation we can face is a dry winter. We just don't have enough water, which we rely on very heavily in our power system. And if that's the case, we could get into rolling power cuts. But coming back to if we were coming up to meet either a morning or winter peak, and we just did not have enough capacity, um, as we had um, on the 9th of August, first thing that we would do is be issuing these notices leading up to a grid emergency, calling for more generation to be made available, uh, calling for, uh, at that stage, any cancelled outage, any plant that can be brought back on, um, and then we let call on the distribution companies, and we now have that visibility, which is very helpful, to drop all that controllable load. If we get to a situation where that's still not enough power available, we would then go for um, power cuts. It's important to point out in a power system, that's, that's kind of a managed, if you like, when you just don't have enough capacity available, 
There are situations where you have a major equipment failure. We carry sufficient reserves for expected failure, the largest plant to fail, but say you've had a major event, you can go for what's called AWFLS, Automatic Under Frequency Load Shedding. I love that acronym, which is where if your frequency just can't be held and you have a major excursion, you trip significant parts of load, which is really important to avoid a cascade failure where you black out either an island or the country. Um, so we do, result as a, a last resort, you have AWFLS. It goes in four blocks. All of the distribution companies have a certain proportion of their load that is available for that. That is our final safety net. We would not want to get to that. We would be looking for managing through as much more generation as we could, calling for as much demand response as available. Then we would eat into or start to use that controllable load the distribution companies have. And at that point, after that, if it's still not enough, then we would have to start um, looking for power cuts. Alison, the thing is that demand is set to double if the Climate Commission is to be um, uh, accurate over the next couple of decades or so. And at the same time, all the new supply coming on now appears to be these more intermittent technologies. We've got our first solar farm connected, announcements for many more. Uh, and so you're going to have a greater issue year on year with um, a greater proportion of supply being intermittent. Where are things at for upgrading the entire system? Transpowers and the um, lines companies uh, to and generation itself to, to manage this. Is there an overall plan? We don't have any central planner in our system. We are an industry that is... is um, fragmented or it has its different players. Um, we all have plans. There's the, uh, Transpower has done its work, Whakamana Itamori Hiko, the Empowering the Energy Future. We've put out our figures for what we expect demand to be. We're working very hard on a um, what we're calling net zero grid pathways, which is saying with this expected increase in demand, um, what does a grid need to look like to make sure we are not going to be a constraint on electrifying New Zealand where does the grid need to be? Where do we need to enhance it? We have had approval from the Commerce Commission for um, $400 million, which is just the first stage to effectively unblock the main pipeline, which runs from Bluff in the south to Kaikoui in the north. How do we make sure that main motorway, if you like, is as um, unblocked as we possibly can? And after that, we'll be needing to look to build new lines to remove these constraints to hook up all this new generation to um, the demand. Now, if you look at our pipeline, um, last year we commissioned five new generation plants, which is the most we've done in um, the last 20 years or so. So five in a year, uh, three, three wind, a couple of um, solar in a, in a battery. Um, so we are seeing in our connections pipeline, we have over 30 gigawatts, so 30,000 megawatts, of capacity that is, it has inquiries to connect to the transmission grid. Bearing in mind our, our system at the moment has peak installed or has installed capacity of 10,000 megawatts. So in our connections queue, three times as much. What is important that you're rightly raising is that it's the mix that's in that pipeline as well. Can't all be intermittent. 
And we do have to address these two fundamental challenges in New Zealand's power system. One is having enough firming capacity, um, fast start firming for that intermittency, more wind, more solar. But also we have to have a solution for dry years. So we're very dependent on hydro, which relies on water inflows, rain and snowmelt. And we don't carry a lot of storage capacity in our big South Island lakes or our hydro system. So we need some form of solution to address that. At the moment, that backup for when we don't have enough water is supplied by our big thermal plant, mainly Huntley, with gas and coal. So as we transition off that, we need to find a solution. The government has cancelled the Onslow project, uh, which was one option for that. But the need for that dry year solution hasn't gone away. And we need to continue to work on what are we going to do um, to make sure we have that dry year covered off. Is it $4.7 billion I think you are seeking to spend over the five years to 2030 on these upgrades? We have put a so we we are a hundred percent regulated entity on our transmission network. Every five years, we submit to the Commerce Commission for what we call a regulatory control period, five years spending of both capital and maintenance. That application of funding is for maintaining and keeping in good health the transmission system as it stands today. So it's Very maintenance. It's not new. Um, that maintenance and replenishment, okay. yes. Very small amount of enhancement. And the reason why that number is a big step up from where we are now is a lot of our grid, which is in good condition, it was built in the 50s and 60s, and we have done a lot of work with asset management to make sure it's in good health, but it gets and to extend its life. You get to a point where you actually need to replace those yeah. assets. So a large part of that is, is making sure that we replenish that so it can last another yeah, 40% increase. That's got to have a flow-on effect to power prices um, uh, through uh, transmission pricing. But, Alison, the other part of this projected doubling of demand on a system where new generation is coming from intermittent sources um, is, is, the, is the actual lines themselves, from the grid to the street. And what's happening there with what will equally need to be massive upgrading of capacity as well? Yes, it's a really good point that you highlight. We are totally dependent as an industry on generation working well, transmission working well, distribution, which is aligns into homes and houses, commercial properties, working well and with retail. So we are all part of a system that needs to work well to deliver um, good service for end consumers. And yes, we also need to look at upgrading the distribution systems. Um, the distribution companies are all working hard on their asset management plans and they are in the same regulatory cycle, those that are regulated, as we are working with the Commerce Commission on what money they're going to need to maintain their assets. There was a projection on price by Graham Peters, who uh, is um, an electricity commentator. He's, had, he's actually had a senior managerial role with the, with the uh, lines businesses. That consumers could expect price to double within five years. Listening to all of the stresses on all of the system right now and all of the investment, investment needed, is he in the ballpark? Yeah, I, don't, I disagree with him. I think there are the number of scenarios that you can project, and I think that would be at the high end. What would what would yours be to realistically prepare households and businesses? 
Well, we've done some analysis, and again, it, it's so dependent on assumptions, so I, I totally put that out there, that if you look at a household bill in 2030, uh, bearing it, just put a little bit of context for a minute, at the moment, the amount of the charges on of transmission, typically about 10% of the average consumer's electricity bill, with the proposal we put forward to the Commerce Commission, that would increase by about $7 um, a month. Uh, as a result. So we think we're still going to stay around that 9, 10, 11% part of the consumer's electricity bill. You are right, there's other proportions that are going up. Um, we worked, Mark, coming back to your question, in 2030, if you look at the average household's energy bill, if you convert to electricity, it's a lot cheaper than running petrol vehicles. So if you have one electric vehicle, um, we think, and assuming electricity prices stay about the same cost as they are today, What's behind that assumption is saying renewables are a lot cheaper than running thermal plant. That could mean that you could get a 25% saving and a 50% saving on your cost if you had two electric vehicles. Yeah. Now, there's quite a lot of assumptions there around what prices delivered to households will be because we think wholesale prices should be a lot lower because the cost from renewables is a lot cheaper. And the cost saving on energy, when you think about how much we pay for petrol fuel, diesel fuel, will mean you make a big saving. Yeah, if you're a household that can afford the upfront cost at this stage. Alison, you're thank you. You're absolutely right. There is, a, there is a just transition issue there that we really have to think about, this affordability and the fairness and equity um, as we make this transition. Thank you very much, Alison. Thank you for your time.